Hi there, and welcome to Product Storyteller. My name is Stuart Noyce, and this is my personal podcast, where I dive into stories of and about product innovation, the crucially important process that satisfies unmet need with unique value. From the origins of the internet to the future of crypto platforms, from Haas MBA classmates to Burning Man makers, I cover the ground where entrepreneurs and business leaders create new value with a wisdom that ensures our shared future. Product Storyteller explores the durable edge of free market capitalism, where people practice restraint and live in community with one another. If you love it, give it a great review and subscribe on iTunes or elsewhere to catch every interview that's coming. My very special guest this week is Mike McGuire, VP of Research at Gartner Group in Mobile Marketing. He's a good friend with a voice for radio, but before he reached his esteemed position at Gartner, he was a surfer, a journalist, a PR guy, and an innovator. Our lives intersected at GeoWorks, at the very beginning of the handheld mobile device revolution, where we were part of a crazy awesome turnaround, in which a company known for competing with Microsoft Windows for the desktop pivoted massively and took on the Apple Newton PDA. Though we have many stories together, we used our time in this episode to talk about the structure of story itself, specifically how we use story in marketing, and how story has changed with the revolution in technology that we saw firsthand. For Mike, this is a perspective that informs his work at Gartner today. From the start of the interview, Mike talks about the advice he gives to clients. It isn't that they should have a set of tactics for mobile marketing, but that they should leverage the fact that every single person out there is mobile and make their brand available at every phase of the customer journey. But does that fundamentally change the narratives that we use to speak to our customers? As a product storyteller, I look for the thread that integrates the work of the developers, the marketers, and the salespeople who bring a new product to market. Does mobile marketing and news cycle acceleration change the story structure that they use? Our conclusion was that technology accelerates and amplifies what we say. So we had better start with a solid foundation grounded in authenticity. The better we know ourselves and our teams, the more likely we are to deliver a strong message in the moment that stays consistent as it evolves. Now, this interview was done on the outside patio at the Village Bakery in Woodside, California. Almost immediately, music starts playing in the background. So I must apologize that the audio quality isn't up to the quality of my guest. But the good news for you, the listener, is that there is no deep fake here. You get the raw take, and that can be a very entertaining thing. I hope you enjoy. Okay, everyone, we are here in Woodside at the Village Bakery and Cafe, and I am here with Mike McGuire, one of my um, very favorite people in the world, and uh, looking forward to uh, a, a great interview that will hopefully go off the rails at some point. So, uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead and get started and introduce yourself. Hi. It's nice to see you again, Stuart. I'm Mike McGuire. Um, I've known Stuart for a long time, and he is one of my favorite people. Um, and I work at a company called uh, Gartner, and I work in <laughs> the Gartner for Marketing Leaders area. I work cover mobile marketing. That's part of my major research remit is uh, working on mobile marketing, but I also look at things like AI for marketing and uh, how multi-channel marketing systems work and are deployed. Awesome. So um, I'm going to take you right into the profile questions, and the very first one is... You know, Mike, what problem do you think you're trying to solve in the world? Uh, in the world, well, I would say the world or the ecosystem I operate in at the moment is about helping, you know, marketing organizations identify 
the best way to engage with consumers on mobile devices. And you know, a lot of people call that mobile marketing, but I, I like to call it kind of managing or leveraging consumer mobility, um, as opposed to thinking of mobile marketing as a set of static things that you do. Okay, so what are you bringing to this? What's your secret sauce, as it were? Uh, the, as an individual. Because a guy, I'm a guy yeah. with a lot of gray hair, I can say experience. Um, and, under, and, and I grew up as a communicator. You know, I was a journalist out of, out of college. Um, and a lot of that, our role is writing and creating research that defines you know, new opportunities for marketing organizations. And I have a lot of history in mobile computing. You and I were probably at the, some of the earliest days of we were. mobile computing, where we didn't really... <laughs> As we've discussed, not exactly sure how this was all, where this was all going to end up. No, it was um, it was clearly we were on a journey. So, um, but what you're doing right now, is it the same thing that you were doing before as a journalist? Um, do you find yourself doing sort of that a similar thing? It is in the in the sense that you're gathering information from multiple sources and synthesizing it in a way that both accurately kind of describes whatever that question or that technology is that the customer is looking to utilize. And again, not teach them how to make these things, but rather how to leverage these tools. Um, and understanding and making business cases for why they should invest in these things or not invest. Um, because a lot of the challenges, you know, with things like marketing have become, you know, utterly much more complex than what you and I grew up with. Well, it's product placement and price. It's like, well, not exactly any of these. <laughs> yeah, the I, can, I can't remember the fourth one. Product? You know, uh, don't even. Positioning. But Position, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the, the thing that, that's interesting now, though, is you know, how do you get paid to do this? So you're usually a salary position, right? In my, oh, the, oh, in that sense. No, yeah, it's a salary position. You are you know, you were staked out or given a certain set of responsibilities or research areas to cover. And you both create that. And you work with your teammates to help them create, refine. A lot of it's peer reviewing. So. It's you know very much a you know very much a salary based kind of position, but it's what's interesting is it's you're not focused on one single thing, one narrow area, and that's part of the real fun of it. Which is why, you know, I think that's where the kind of the connection back to journalism, right? Is if you're not inherently curious about stuff, it's hard to be a journalist, and it's also hard to be a marketer if you're not curious about why is this working or why do people like this or how do I make people like this? Um, more importantly, how do I make them like it and give me money? Or make uh, something that they actually like, yeah. um, which is kind of my, my thing. Um, okay, so let's look back in your, in your career. Is there any one thing you would point to that's like the greatest result that you've had from being in journalism and or marketing? It's hard to point to a single thing. Um, this may sound cliche, but a lot of it is just getting, over the years, has been getting recognition from clients to say, you know, you got, you really helped us. You know, I get a lot of those kinds of things every day, not every day, but in a lot of, uh, you know, that's kind of the, besides the, obviously the paycheck and the benefits, you know, this kind of job is, yeah, it's nice to see like a report of yours get cited or recognized by your peers. That's really important. But what I've always found the, to me to be the real benefit is, um, or the thing you're pointing out, it's again, a single event's tough to point out, but a, a consistency, uh, being consistently regarded by your clients as being helpful. Mm, okay. Not a nice guy that's fun to talk to, but also helpful. Um, and that's, you know, about as good as it can get. 
I think probably a career high point was back in 2000, 2002, was working with the Harvard uh, Law School's Berkman Center, which we had one of the first kind of digital media and law and technology um, kind of research groups, research areas that we pursued together. Awesome. So what's going to happen in the next 12 months, you know, at, at Gartner Group? You know, what are you, what are you knocking out that's going to be really cool? Well, I think part of it, uh, well, a couple things I'm working on are these areas about trying to understand how to stop focusing on mobile marketing kinds of topics as a set of tactics and more about this notion of mobility and how, you know, translating that kind of amorphous idea that a lot, I think a lot of people would think when they hear it into actually real examples of how certain brands don't just do, quote, mobile marketing. They manage consumer, they access consumer mobility. They are able to leverage that and make it part of their brand, but in a very subtle way where it's not, here's our brand in the mobile context. It's here's our brand that runs across and is available to you at any phase of a customer journey or uh, you know, purchase cycle. Well, that is really um, uh, very exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to watching how it unfolds. Um, one of the one of the things I want to go through next is really go back in time into when you started in journalism. Hmm. So what made you think this was a good career choice? No kidding. I started on the high school newspaper. And it was, you know, it, it was, it's funny. I, I wanted to do music and film review, right, as like a 16-year-old. You know, did I read any theory books? Yeah, no. Um, did you need to? I didn't think so, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I still do. But I mean, you know, the I loved movies and I loved music, right? And so I thought, ah, oh, they thought it, it was funny. Everybody, thought, oh, you want to be the sports editor? I was like, nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get free tickets to the movie theater and tickets to shows, concerts? Like, well, maybe. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, I'll do that. Um, so that the, that led to then, did you go to college for that? Yeah, I got one of those degrees that at the time sounded good, but now, you know, you're like, you got a journalism degree? <laughs> Where did uh, you go? Uh, well, I did, you know, did back at the time, it was very common for, in my area, where I grew up, you did two years at a good community college, which was Cabrillo College, uh -huh. and all your units, AP stuff, transferred directly to UC and pretty much any university. So I did that, worked on the local paper there. That was my first time I really got charged and went, oh, this actually, this stuff is important was um, I decided to do, or I was assigned to do a whole very big, what we would call takeout, right? A very, you know, yeah. couple stories together, a large theme, and it was about the offshore oil uh, permits that were at that time, you know, up for play for the North Coast, particularly mm -hmm. in the Monterey Bay. And I wasn't very, it wasn't very good. It was, you know, terrible uh, as a story, but it was, it made me realize about the, the process of reporting and learning about this as opposed to just pulling stuff, the facts out of books, you know, and talking to people I knew in the community who were going to be potentially affected, like all the guys I grew up whose dads were fishermen, right, or surfers. Well, uh, that, that's your story, isn't it? You grew up, if you went to school at Cabrillo. I grew up in, I was born and raised in Santa Cruz. Exactly. On the beach. My parents' <laughs> house is, uh, got an unobstructed view to the, the beach south of the harbor. That's unfortunate. It's a, it was a it was a rough life, um, but certainly certainly you wouldn't want the the oil in the water. I mean that's no because my I had direct experience with that because my mom's family's all from Santa Barbara, 
And yeah. I remember when I was with 68, 69, having to go to the beach and not be, and go down there to hang out for a month with my grandma and couldn't go to the beach. Or if we could, we couldn't go in the water. And of course, it was both horrifying and somewhat beautiful. There would be a swell would come through and you'd go, wow, look at that. It's, it's perfectly glassy tubes. It's almost, oh, it is unnatural because that's the oil on the water. Um, so, wow. Geez, that was looking really, oh, okay. And I remember really being, you know, going for a walk on the beach with my grandma and having to go home and then get, I don't know if it was naphtha or probably some awful chemical to get the oil off your feet, right? Because the oil uh, drops were there. So, I mean, yeah, that was a growing up on the beach. And at that time, I didn't think of myself as being particularly, you know, as a 10-year-old, 9-year-old as being active, but being kind of angry and then cycle forward, you know, 10 years being at the college newspaper and saying, being told, hey, no, it's okay. We don't just write about what happens. That journalism teacher uh, passed a while ago, but uh, Mr. Nolan was, without being really overt, um, was very inspiring in terms of getting me interested. Like, no, this is kind of important work. Of course, years later when I got my journalism degree, my dad clapped me on the shoulder and said, well done, you found the one job that actually pays less than teaching, which is what I do. He was such an inspiration to you, yeah. <laughs> your father, who must be a wonderful guy. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I, actually, this is a good kind of a good opportunity then to, did you go to San, UC Santa Cruz then? Or did you go to one of the I other was, at UCs? At that time, Uncle Charlie's summer camp wasn't an option. Oh, um, too bad. Well, because right at that time, they were only doing written evaluations. Um, and it wasn't as strong as it is. The, the school now is, you know, oh, it's got a very strong computer science department. No, I mean, I ended up, I actually got accepted at Davis. Oh. Uh, did a year there, and I was going to do this science communications, which is, I was going to do marine biology, and I was going to be able to learn how to communicate and write. And it was like, because at that time, there was a moment where I was like, you know, my objective is how do I become a National Geographic writer? Yeah. Right? And you realize, well, they're not actually staffers. <laughs> uh, but whatever, I didn't know that. Um, but two weeks before I show up, I'd already packed my little truck with all my stuff to move up to Davis, live in the dorms, which was very strange to me. Um, and two weeks before I showed up, I got the letter that says, greetings. And that greetings was followed by, hey, we've canceled that department and that program. Oh, dear. Right? And I was like, well, okay, I'll do some undergrad work. And then somebody said, well, you know, you could write your own major. And I was like, uh, that sounds tremendous. Okay, I started working on that, and then I called one of the, you know, uh, I guess you would call them counselors or whatever at, at Davis or at the UC system. Oh, yeah, you can totally. Oh, that looks pretty good. He said, now, you need to understand, that's probably going to add like a year and a half to get your undergrad. And I was like, I don't have three and a half years of money. I got two. Um, which, you know, did my year and then went, I got my degree at San Jose State which okay. had a, at that time still does have a fairly well-regarded journalism department. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, segue then into, through the innovation aspect of what we do. So as a journalist, you're constantly innovating, aren't you? You're constantly trying to figure out what, to, you know, what oh, your next story is. Right? That's just, you know, in general, right, as a, as a constant. These days, it's even harder, I think, to be a, quote, journalist, because it's not just writing or if you're a TV reporter being on camera, you know, you're expected now to be active across so many channels. 
but the dry, the, the core thing that goes is where do I get that next story? Where's the story? Where is that? Where do I break the story that's going to get me at <laughs> this is audience? This will, I'm going to be talking about physical newspapers. You may not remember those, but back in the day, the objective as a journalist is above the fold, page one. Exactly. Where do I, where's the next story that's going to get me above the fold, page one? Uh, you went to the Oakland Tribune. Was that right away? Actually, no. I worked for the. I did. No, I did not work for the Tribune. Okay. I worked for uh, one, of the, one of the last family-owned chains. It was the Hayward Daily Review, the oh. Fremont Argus, the Tri Valley Herald, which was very competitive at that time. The Bay Area news scene was very competitive. There was a. So that was Alameda County. It was pretty much the Sparks chain that owned right. the Hayward Daily Review, um, and then. North of that, in Contra Costa County, was Dean Lesher, who owned a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the papers that competed up in the North Bay, Northeast Bay, up in Concord, etc. And then you had the Mercury News, which at that time, you know, I think I don't know if the family still sold. That even the Chronicle was still most yeah. of the family, the Young family, was still actively involved. So it was actually a really competitive time, and the Oakland Tribune, um, which was still was at that time independently owned. Um, so it was actually a really competitive newspaper market. So, yeah, so if it's so competitive, you know, what are the kind of stories that you need to break to get above the fold? Um, a lot of it, you know, was... In the know, Bay, that's in the Bay Area. In the Bay, in the in, Bay Area. In uh, what years? So 80s? I was working from 83 till yeah. 89. Yeah. Um, you know, I got focused. There was a lot of... Um, Getting on page one was usually like a big, big property developments or the usual stalwarts, right? Crime and grime, fuzz and was, whatever you want to call it. Uh, if, it if it bleeds, it leads. Um, but not always, because it, you told me that you told me once that I, I used to. When I first moved here, I lived near the uh, Lake Merritt, so on, mm -hmm. you know, just near the exit off of um, off of I guess it was 580, and uh, mm -hmm. there were often. Um, gunfights oh yeah on that just on that exit there would be gunfights and i would hear them at night and i would think you know some of this must be showing up in the paper but it never seemed to show up so what was going on not there? every shooting or firefight makes the news uh some of them even just, when there's machine gun fire it, that that no probably not unless a lot of people got uh killed or okay or cops were involved it was okay. a firefight might have made the but uh, back then it was the usual, I mean, what was fascinating is in the north part of Alameda, in that area where you were, uh, near where you are, you know, there was a whole crimp, a lot of interesting activity, but there was at that time Felix Mitchell, who was, went down in history as one of the big first kind of crime, you know, drug lords, he had a very efficient, ingenious kind of distribution system that was all through the Fruitvale housing mm. complexes. Um, those sorts of things, but tech was just kind of on the edge. But at that time, a lot of it was about property development and local crime. It was the, gosh, our little towns are now changing um, sort of approach. It was, uh, but it usually it had to be, you know, if it was a drug bust, it had to be, you know, n number of kilos and million dollars or more. If it's not a million dollars, it's a small sidebar story somewhere else. So <laughs> I always thought you were getting <laughs> the cops competing to say, oh, did we say two kilos? No, 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 no. 20. It was 20. Um, no, I'm, I, I joke. They never did that. They never, ever inflated any of that. No, never. Um, no. Okay, so um, 
then we, we at some point, you and I crossed paths mm -hmm. in the early 90s. It's around 92. I leave Sun Microsystems and I go to work for GeoWorks. And GeoWorks is making a major pivot um, from being desktop operating system competing against Windows to creating a new generation of consumer computing devices. And there we, there we were. There CCDs. we met. CCDs. Is that what they were? That's charge-coupled devices. <laughs> so here we were at this place and um, doing something a bit unnatural, really, because we're building the first set of mobile computing devices in many ways and with really, really big customers. Truly mobile as opposed to portable, right? Because the mode back then for computing was really was portable. You could pick the thing up and move it. So that's where you came from, right? Yeah. So tell me about that. That's where I'd been at a company called Grid that developed some of the first commercial laptops. There's an, an ongoing historical battle. Was it, was it Compaq or Grid or somebody else? I thought it was the Osborne. Well, the Osborne was kind of like a big sewing machine. It was a luggable. <laughs> it was that, that luggable, exactly. <laughs> um, kids, go ask your grandparents what that means. Um, the, uh, but I'd, we had also come, but had developed very refined, smaller products, but they were very expensive. They were made out of magnesium. Mm. The NSA loved them. The Marine Corps loved them. Celebrities loved them. But they were very, very, why did very they, expensive. Why did they hire you? Because I could write and I could communicate. And I was curious so I could be useful in translating what's the value of this? Because we weren't, when we were in communications and PR, we were, back in those days, you had another layer to deal with. You couldn't directly deal with the you know, consumer as you can now much easier, right? And so you had to translate what's the value of this to reporters who are typically business reporters, not always very technically savvy, right? I mean, some of the first technology reporters didn't show up till 90, 89 at newspapers where there was an assigned role as a tech reporter. So a lot of it was translating, well, why is a 286 better than an 8086? Well, there's more transistors. Well, what, so what? What does that mean? Okay, well, we can do this, and I can do more, the software can do more interesting things. Hopefully you're sharing some value addition. Did they, do you think that reporters were really good at you know, identifying the, the news here in terms of new value being created? Uh, I don't think it was very long-term view. I mean, again, back then in the day, in the, 24, in the you know, day, 24-hour, or rather the two-hour news cycle, right, as opposed to the 24-hour news cycle, it was hard for them to do that. And in a lot of ways, the, it was the, the cost and expense sometimes often amassed the really important kind of evolution and transformation of this technology because everybody's so focused, well, how much does it cost, right? And how long will the battery life be? Which were important things, but I think a lot of, some folks, very few of them did. I mean, there were some folks like Evelyn Richards, obviously, uh, John Markoff, who, you know, did decades at the New York Times leading their technology research. You know, he started out at one of the trade, what we call trade publications that was really, he was writing for an audience of engineers and technology and marketers, right, who were gonna buy this technology. Um, Folks like him and uh, you know and Evelyn Richards, I think, were some of those early folks who kind of really who did understand where this was going. Both of them, I think, were writing about kind of what they were hearing about this thing called the internet, right? This networking, because back then, kids, we used 56k modems to hook up to our computers to send files back and forth. 
Um, and I don't know that anybody really saw. I mean, there are people now might look, well, of course I was saying that this was going to change the world, but I don't know that anybody really saw the extent to which. Right. Nobody envisions a smartphone. I mean, you and I worked on some of those early devices, and what did we, what did we hear from Casio? Single function device. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't know how much time we're going to be able to have to spend in this, in this particular device. area, but we did work with some really, really big consumer electronics companies. And uh, we told their story. You told their story. I actually had to go just work on building them, which was you had to own, make it real. Which was its own challenge. That was an interesting um, was an interesting path. But I want to go back into that because uh, you know I just remember um, you with Deborah, Deborah Dawson, right? And uh, just being this you know like just duo that's trying to figure out how to corral this executive team into some place where we can tell this story. And you must have done a, a heck of a job because this is actually, it, to me, it was one of the big unicorns of the time. I mean, it's like, it wasn't as big as some of the others like Sun Microsystems where I had been, but it really had a valuation that was- Did pretty well. That did very well. It fought well above its weight, if you might, you know, it might say. And I think that was because of the stories you were telling. What do you, do you can you- you know, I think, you know, Deborah was very, you know, did a pretty impressive job of being both a translator and a buffer, right, between kind of engineering and the management team, which could be, which, you know, on both sides, all sides, you know, we're at that time, we're somewhat mercurial. Um, and she didn't really job. I think, you know, I think we did a, a good job in, in translating this very arcane, you know, magic technology, right, that magic in the sense that most consumers or people just didn't understand. Yeah, and when we were transitioning to a consumer product, which is what these were. Right, PDAs. Yeah, we'd call them CCDs, PDAs, PDAs. all sorts of acronyms. All great, wonderful acronyms, yeah. Uh, these, uh, these products that we were creating, uh, they, we had an operating system and nobody wanted to know about the operating system. So that was, no. a ch think, a bit of a challenge. It was tough, right? It was like trying to describe a car and not, and not be, have anybody care whether it was an old-fashioned carburetor system or a fuel injection. Like, no, you know how much better the fuel injection system is? It's like, well, this operating system, boy, if it's small, lightweight, and capable, that's really yeah. important. Well, no, I just want to be able to see, you know, Tetris coming down the screen. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Tetris was the, the thing. It's all about the games. Um, and those end up becoming hugely important in the products today these little social games. Um, sure. So, uh, okay, so let's go casual games and social games being what my wife plays. Um, so let's go, though, to, you know, that kind of breaks up after a time, right? There's only so much that can be done with GeoWorks, and, and Palm had to finally ran out of money. And Palm was, so... It was Handspring, I believe. Handspring. Was it Handspring before? What was it, it was Handspring, and then it became Palm when it got the really? app out there. But the apps were always on top of all of these devices. Yes. And then, uh, and then, eventually, Palm just kind of said, "Well, these aren't going anywhere." <laughs> Runs out of money and gets U.S. Robotics to buy it, and the rest is history. So here we are now. You, when that broke up, I ended up 
going to work with one of the guys, that Rick Dalmazi, who is our head of sales. And uh, he took me to Certicom, which was cool, which was more of the same in terms of computing devices. But you went somewhere else. And, and how did you make that transition? Uh, yeah, at that time, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I went to PC Week. Oh. And became, uh, at the time, the Macintosh, Mac, Apple reporter for PC Week. So think about that. Back then, kids, this was well before. <laughs> you, think, you think that I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads were showed a, a certain polarization in the marketplace. Back then, um, it wasn't like that. It was worse. Um, Apple was in a very different position than it was in its first phase. Um, so it was kind of interesting, right, to see that. And that was a lot of there. I was, because I'd come, worked at an OS company. You know, that's, you know, I covered that and did that for about a year and a half. And then I got hired by a company called DataQuest uh, yeah. to do market research. And I became like, I think the first, second person that they're, as an analyst, research analyst there, but on the second one that just looked at mobile computing. Not everything else, just mobile computing. Um, and that became, you know, that's where I made that full transition kind of into being Okay, is this 2000 world. yet? Mm -mm. This is uh, 1990, 1994. Okay, so how long were you there and were you there during the, the you know, the dot-com boom? Uh, oh, this is a, yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah, I worked, went to DataQuest and worked on uh, doing mobile computing, mobile device research. And a lot of that was, what are these technologies going to, how these, you know, how are CPUs going to change and to create these mobile devices? Um, then Gartner actually bought DataQuest back in 95, something like that. And I did another year or two there. And then I got enamored with a really cool hardware design, which is not at the time wasn't right because everything was software and the web.com. <laughs> um, and I was like, if that, this piece of soft hardware, which was a, key, a foldable keyboard design, which I got entranced because of the stainless steel mo you know, production model that the inventor had created. And I, at that time, remember, you, know, you the showed that to me. Yeah, I thought it was really going to be cool because I thought, oh, these PDA things. Right, the Zoomers and the, and the Palm Pilots and the other little tablet thingies would be around for a while. And they, they were around for a while. But we're thinking, oh, this keyboard, you know, we could just, then you have a full-size keyboard, and that, that's all you need. You know, and like a you know, 56K modem, you know, built into that little puppy and email anywhere, right? With yeah. a full-size keyboard. Um, that kind of did what those sometimes often happens just certain, uh, how should we say, creative differences between myself and the founders. Um, the other guy who was the engineer there, though, head engineer, who's just a genius guy. He had been at Apple. He would worked on things like some of the early Newtons. Uh, really, just a really strong mechanic. Yeah. He went on, now he's at Sonos, you know. Um, but at that time, that didn't work out. And I was, did some, uh, worked with you, some, did some, a couple of event things and PR things at Certicom. Yeah. With another individual we worked at at the time, who was your uh, Corpcom guy, who went on to big things at Google. Oh, um, David, David Crane. Yeah. Yeah. And we worked on that for a while. Yeah. And uh, then at that time, I got recruited to be uh, to come back to Gartner to work more on what we would call vertical research back then, which was about media and how media was going to be affected and changed by 
the internet and digital devices. Right. And so like that's that. you really start to see what you know. You really start to see then this change that that mobile can have. But it, it's still really, really primitive, frankly. I mean, oh. the whole thing, the things we were building um, with HP. The OmniGo 100. The OmniGo uh, 100, yes. Yes, right? Yes. The, the Casio Tandy Zoomer, which was just, I, I don't even have, we don't even have enough time to go into half of the stories on this. That will be another time. I think I actually want to get Rick to have those stories with me on the particular products that we built. Um, but uh, Oh, and the word dedicated word processors. And, yeah, and then yeah. Sharp. Sharp, we did a PT9, yep. which was with a first tablet. Right, which had six AA batteries. Yep. <laughs> and all of these were running on a 286. These were very primitive. They, they were they beautiful were. and sweet, really amazing pieces of technology when you think back on them, but, but they weren't going to be the, the world beaters. That they were going to be business come. tools. They weren't going to be yeah. broadly adopted consumer tools. Yeah, they're just, they, they, at the time, they were sort of the beginning. They're just sort of a hint. Of I don't think you doing. and I, because, you know, it was very hard. I mean, we could do email on these sorts of things and dedicated applications, which was really cool for a whole bunch of workers, white-collar workers. It was like, wow, this is, this is a better way to do this stuff. Right. But, but was even there that, yeah. anything, you know, and if you remember... <laughs> but they all want the to share, worst, they want to share wait, attachments. Wait, so you're wait, not going to pull wait, up wait, your... Wait, wait, Anyway, go ahead, yes. But we did have an OS on what? The world's first smartphone. Nokia 9000 communicator. <laughs> Kids, it is in a museum. Um, God, I died. that was really fascinating to work with the Finns on that. It was so close, right? And then, you know, was it five, six, seven years later, they came out with the N95, yeah. which we all thought, everyone's like, graphical user interface, the internet, the web, email, wireless. Money was flowing in because of the dot-com. I mean, there was so oh, much energy, so much money, so much energy. A lot of really, really early, and it's what, this is what probably I learned the most from this time, is it's not bad, necessarily, <laughs> unless you're in, it's investing your money. Um, <laughs> but it does move the entire market forward, right? It's almost necessary to move things forward. Oh, no, I mean, right? honestly, those things, if you think about it, you know, kind of slid into the, you know, digital primordial ooze, right? And kind of actually were the the matter that became, boy, let me stretch this metaphor, right, became the material that turned into the oil, yeah. right, that literally once, you know, that connection was made with something like, you know, that came by with the iPhone. Yeah. Um, well, it's really the iPhone. And the that, advance of wireless networks. Yeah, it's really the iPhone that, that ends up being the, you know, the, the point when it all takes off. And, you know, I could, I think that's another you know, that's a whole other podcast no, that's with some the, uh, people. But that's, there's, a, there's a place where we get to that place, but it has to go through a whole bunch of steps, most of which are, are certainly hardware. I mean, it's just literally, it's just, you know, 18-month cycle after 18-month cycle, smaller and smaller um, channel widths, more and more transistors on, uh, you know, a, a thing that takes less power to run until you get to the point where you can put all the functionality that was necessary. So from a marketer's perspective, looking at it, having banged my head against it for a long time, there were just not enough features that yeah. were adding enough value for it to make it. So you just let, kind of look at it that way and go, all right, well, it was a good try, but, but I, you, know, you can't tell an investor at the time. They're just not listening. Well, it's hard. They, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. They okay, really so don't. So now, now you're at Gartner, 
are there people listening to you at Gartner who say, yeah, or, you know, as, a, as customers of Gartner, who say, as clients that say, yeah, this is, this is cool. I can use these devices now for mobile marketing. What does that look like? Well, it's, it's still developing. There are a number of you know, extremely mature marketing organizations that have kind of figured out mobile marketing or their take on accessing and leveraging consumer mobility. Um, for a lot of other channels or for a lot of other marketers, it's, and I'd say this is probably the majority are still kind of on their maturation journey or mature their maturation journey to fully exploiting it. We still see a lot of people just kind of treating it as tactics, right? Do some SMS things here and there or the odd mobile coupon, but there's a point where those tactics need to actually kind of mature to the point where, where I envision it, which is mobile kind of, this is mobility, right? Links all of the aspects of our marketing, all of our marketing disciplines. It's not just this channel right, or this island of things you do for your, I mean, I had a very large recognizable company say, <coughs> I would, looking at how they were using mobile technology and doing mobile marketing. And he said, well, you know, we haven't really fully explored our mobile customers. I said, you're a, a global multinational who has hundreds of millions, if not billions of, quote, customers they're all mobile. Um, <laughs> and it's not mobile, it's mobility. And by the way, you're in the business where you should be thinking more about enabling mobility as opposed to selling the product that you sell right now. Right? It's the old, you know, no, we're not in the train business, we're in the transportation yeah, business. Yeah, yes, exactly. And you're enabling mobility. And I mean, it was just so funny to hear him say, oh, we haven't really fully exploited our mobile consumers and customers. It's like, Dude. Okay, so, so now it's time to, do, to go into, all right, with all this stuff that we built, we fundamentally changed, and it's not you and me, but it's just we being the collective we of these industries, have changed the way journalism works now. Is that fair? Oh, uh, it's maybe, it maybe it's the, are we still telling stories in the same way? No. What's no. different, you think? Well, a lot of it is the medium has now kind of, um, both merged and kind of splintered. And by merge, I mean you were either a print reporter or editor, or you were a TV reporter, editor, producer, or you were a radio <laughs> TV editor, producer. And if you think about it now, you know, a friend of mine's still in the business, very well-regarded uh, reporter in Hawaii, uh, dear old friend. And he and I went to journalism school together. He was actually my editor at the college daily newspaper. And he's never left. He's been in journalism since 1984. LA Times, San Jose Mercury, wanted to move to Hawaii. That's what he did. And now though, in the old days, I could still, we, we would still have our common kind of terms and understanding for discussions. Taking the notes, it was you know oh we got you know we still remember the day both of us got our first Trash 80 Radio Shack because it was like oh my god you mean I have a I have a typewriter I can carry around with me and then I plug it into the phone line and it magically sends my story to the editor who might be more than 50 miles away from me oh my god oh oh this is so cool <laughs> we both like we called each other I remember at one point say isn't it so aren't these things so cool. He's like, well, you know, the keyboard's a little cramped, but yeah, 
Right now, when I talk to him, and he's still a daily, you know, he's an investigative guy, he's been focused on the homeless issue in Hawaii. He has to take pictures, he has to take video interviews, and he's got to post to the thing, you know, by the minute, not by the hour. Or the, It's like, he gets the story, he's working on it in the field, boom, he's sending it, right? And that, that immediacy, it, wait a minute, that's immediacy, that's saying, you know, it's, we, I, before you had time, but now it's there's like a price, a But there's a price you pay for that, yeah, right? right. You, you get the news out immediately, which is, in the end, still the old newspaper man, person's job, right? Which is, get the story first, beat the competition, above the fold, want on page one. Yeah. Okay, that's still there, but now you, gotta, you might have to be doing that several times a day, right? And again, also having to do video, and if your photographer can't get... As he was, you know, told me, you know, I, he, when the, so the he eruptions did. were happening, he'd have to get fly to the Big Island, get sneak into the areas to get the story. And if his photographer couldn't make it, he's got to do it himself. Pull out the iPhone, Bucko. Yeah, well, the iPhone's a good choice for that. Well, a great story from him was, you know, uh, what was it? It was fire and rain. <laughs> right? It was the volcano, the regular, and then the, if you remember, there was like heavy rainstorms on Kauai. There was the floods. It was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He got the one really good picture really? of a buffalo, because there are buffalo who are raised on the island of Kauai, on the beach, with you know Hanalei Bay in the background. Wow! Um, like you with know, his with his mobile phone. With iPhone, I think he might have had a no. I think he might have had a digital camera, but I think it was his iPhone. Yeah, but it was, you know, that the demands on the job now are fascinating. Again, you no longer and actually, you know, my niece has you know got a journalism degree, out of Berkeley, and she was. You know, she didn't listen barely, to you. Barely didn't listen to me at all. I had to really like, don't tell your parents I had anything to do with this. <laughs> um, but she did. She does quite well, of course. You know, six months into kind of post graduation, she's uh, already got her own bylined article in the New York Times Magazine. Um, <laughs> which that made you jealous. I'll be honest, folks. That never happened to me. Um, <laughs> That's why. But even then, you know, she was in her. In her, because she was coming a freelance, she did work at a couple of kind of news technology, science news services. Same thing, audio interviews, having to take pictures, do that. That is, you know, whereas again, when I was in journalism, that was a whole, somebody else's job was to do photos, and I'm not in radio, so I don't, you know, we recorded interviews, but we didn't, that wasn't a deliverable. That was a way to capture information. Right, right. Now, you know, you're gonna see, you see these reporters at the scrums, at, you know, in Washington or at any event. They've got their iPhones or their smartphones, and they aren't just, you know, they are recording, but they're, maybe they're radio reporters, maybe they aren't. They're more See, likely print reporters. Right. But they have to be able to work in multiple media, if you will. So they're using different uh, media, as you said, to get the word out. Is, a lot of this is social media, right? And are they using social media now in a I, way I, that's, I that makes the story different? Well, I think in terms of how the audience can now interact with it in real time, mm. right, as opposed to the old letter to the editor, right, that may or may not have actually ever been, run or publish. Yeah. Or was actually a letter uh, to the editor, but... <laughs> uh, I did time on that one time, I was working on letters, uh, helping the person who had to do the editorial page guys do that. Um, you'd be shocked. <laughs> You'd be shocked to ask. Some, some of these letters were amazing. I mean, they were, the writing was tremendous. It's just, just not right for 
It's not the right tone. Uh, Just not the right tone for our paper. But anyhow, um, having to work across so it, by, and the nature of the way that people can engage or quote interact, right with the story is very very different. I mean, I still think the best use of so and as you, and reporters now, as, you, as we were saying, yeah, I have to post my story, then I have to be able to, you know, uh, interact on Twitter. Maybe not Facebook. Depends on what the, what you're doing, right? You have to be able to take that story and then engage with the audience in these on these other platforms, right? Not just in your safe, the home of your safe little paper or publication that you work for. And that I think has changed a lot, you know, um, in terms of that. I mean, at first when these mediums came out, um, or when you know something like Twitter or blogs, um, right, were that from a journalist, they were great as a syndication tool, right? To be able to say, maybe not deliver the story, but be able to put it out on the internet and say, hey, I just posted this story on my paper, my magazine's site, check it out. Um, as they've gotten, and you know, the challenge for that is that that model and the way social media kind of has exploded, um, you know, it's been a real challenge for, for journalists in terms of the business model. As a distribution tool, and an amplification device, an amplifier, amazing, right? And I can now use this as a syndication service to, sit, to hundreds of millions of people will now know, I have a story, a new story I just posted. Right. The so, business model got disrupted though. Okay, so I, I'm gonna make this a little practical here. So we, uh, being at Certicom, I was you know, working with David. I, we also worked with Robin Luchansky, who is uh, quite a force. Unfortunately, she's passed away, yep. which is sad. Uh, but she was quite a force in terms of storytelling. She was very insistent that we have a strong story that would resonate with a journalist. And so much of, of the, you know, in a world today where you have Twitter and Facebook and some of these, and LinkedIn actually, um, you see marketing groups going straight to the customer, right? They don't even, they don't pass through a journalist's lens. They go straight to the customer, tell them what they want to hear, what they believe they want to hear. So there's, in the past, there might have been someone who said, you know, I'm going to be the arbiter of the story because I'm going to clear, clearly create uh, something from the community around me that is reflective of the greater idea that's happening here. That, well, that's gone now, right? Is there, is there any of that left? I think certain entities or individuals have bubbled up kind of in the social media, and, and I think individually or individual consumers or citizens view them as arbiters. I need to go see what so and so. The, are these the influencers then? To some degree, influencers. Some of them are actually still, you know, journalists and authors, mm. right? But it's not often, quote, the New York Times or the L.A. Times, right? We now see these individuals. They may still be attached to those uh, organizations. Right. So there's a, a person who has a name associated with a particular, you know. Idea now they have more outlets for that for their stories, mm -hmm. right? So in a way they're and journalists, but now they're independent journalists telling stories, telling stories across multiple based media. In, you know, essentially, nobody will like this. You know, that's in the business. But if you think about some of these, and you know, here I'm talking about authors that are pretty well known. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, works sure. across multiple mediums. Now, sure, right? Is Michael Lewis's As podcast, a podcast? Michael Lewis's podcast. Was I was surprised. Is as good as any of his writing. I mean, as powerful as books are. He, oh, he, 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 figured, took a, he took a different approach at it. So a lot of podcasts are interviews. 
Yes. They're very intimate. They, they really help you understand a person, <clears throat> where they're going with it. But his was, I got a point of view, and I have a production crew. <laughs> so we're going to oh, make no. that. <laughs> he is not sitting in his home office with his, you know, with his uh, digital audio recorder editing files. No, he's got a team. Yeah. Point being, I mean, so in some regrets, you can think the, of these. And so, again, they may st these people may still be, influencers may still be attached to a conventional media organization. Um, but oftentimes, they've built their career up, but they've now built an audience that now can connect, as you said, directly to them. Right? And if they're not interacting directly, they're getting a stream of, what does Malcolm Gladwell say about X? You know, and I can get that directly without having to, you know, I might, the media company might be in the background, but they're not in the foreground. And I would say a lot of these people, you know, does, does everybody think of Malcolm Gladwell as a best-selling author? Or what he started as, right, as a New Yorker writer. Mm. Good point. Right? I mean, Good that's point. important to people like you and me who follow that, because we do. Right. But your average consumer may not know that. They may just think of Malcolm Gladwell, who I think he now has a podcast, too. Yeah, uh, they just think of him as the podcast As Malcolm guy. Gladwell, not New Yorker writer. Right? I mean, think about somebody like, in the same time context, Rowan Farrow is really a New Yorker. Well, is he more a New Yorker writer? Gosh, I thought he was. Um, is he a staff writer? He may have achieved such stature now that he's not even that. He's just Rowan Farrow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you're, I'm coming in with some, uh, some other names too. So <clears throat> I think that really, it's part of this whole fragmentation that's come about because of all the, the technology. And it's not just mobile. I mean, it's the internet. Right? It's the internet, it's workstations, it's, it's mobility. It's all of those things together that then when you layered on top of that, Web 2.0 and the interaction through, mm -hmm. uh, which begat um, Facebook and these other you know, big social media entities, um, that, that really fundamentally changed many ways in which we approach people. It's very, from a tactics perspective, I'm wondering if it has changed the fundamental structure of story that we use to tell um, the message of a product. Now, you're, as you're in there talking to people about their brand and make, making their brand mobile ready or mobile, you know, enabling well, their I mobility. I think the biggest difference, right, is when we were doing that on product releases or new things or products we were working on, you had a very long lead time. Right to develop the story, refine it. Okay, now we go to now we're going to go to distribute distributing it, and hope. Oh, let's hope we get on the front page of the business section of the New York Times. Absolutely. Or the front page. Um, I took a company public. I had a whole file full, file space full of data points that we were using all along the way, not just to get to that point where we're talking about it, but also to actually write the prospectus and to tell that story. And it took a year. Right. Yeah, we don't, and that doesn't, that's not the way it works anymore, right? right. I mean, it might, have in a lab's time, it might still take a year, but you're typically now iterating, right? The whole issue with, you know, let's get a minimum viable product out there and we'll iterate over time. Whereas when you and I, it was like, that thing didn't, that part didn't work in the code. Product's not going out. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas nobody has that time anymore. And so now it's this kind of iterative process and that's the thing is challenge I think for the way people tell stories is you have to think in not in a big story about our big new product that's going to hit and what I would call kind of the set and forget that's not 
That was sort of batch the launch. Blast. I think batch there was a launch story. Remember, it was batch and blast, right? We'd yeah. get everything ready, then we'd get batch it, we'd get it, boom, and send it out. And then we'd see what happened. Whereas now, with the feedback loop of social, the feedback loop of social, yeah, I think, I think about it's all the iterative. You know, sometimes you get stuck, and sometimes products get stuck in a cycle, and you can't tell much of a story because it's not going anywhere. So, so here's what I'm saying. I'm seeing, I'm seeing companies with an old school way of marketing, not able to move fast enough to get their message out. Yeah, and a lot of them are investing in automation, hoping that's what's going to help them but they haven't maybe fundamentally rethought well, what it is they're trying to, what, what marketing storytelling is now in an iterative as opposed to, I'm going to develop this linear narrative that's going to go, I'm going to start it here, I'm going to go through these phases, right. beginning to end. That so, doesn't happen anymore. So, all right, I'll, I'm going to relate it back to podcasting since we're here on a podcast and we, I love meta. So uh, the, the idea of doing a podcast is really telling a story in real time as I'm talking to you. Now, I know you pretty well, so I, I, I can guide you in some areas, but you're going to take me in new areas, too. And every interview I do goes there. And that's part of this whole, you've got to be ready to, to accept what just came in and go with it in the direction that it wants to go. And I think that's the scary part of modern marketing. And it's also uh, the dangerous part because, and it's scary because it's dangerous, because you can go into places that um, could limit your career, right? If you tweet every day, um, all sorts of whatever comes to your mind, it's yeah. possible that you know someone might finally object and respond. It's, a, it's very much a high wire act, you know, without a net, you know, it in terms of. What you and I were, we were used to, you know, 20 years ago, where you you controlled the narrative because you didn't tell anybody products coming on. Uh, yeah. You would all we'd have this thing where it was back this very kind of uh, very carefully designed kind of roadmap to when the and when the launch happened, it was great. And then, okay, the next sophisticated term we make is we'll go do a launch overseas. You know, we'll you know and then sure. we'll do regional launches. And we'd wait for the results to come back. Yeah, I always thought it was because we had only so much time to sort of think about it, and we were more cautious, and that we would save up our money, right? We'd save up our money to use that, you know, that blast at some point. Um, I, right, and I think, you know, one of the challenges is not just how it's changed us, but right in terms of our audience, the consumer, right? I think the biggest thing we haven't really touched on is what happened with the Internet and a lot with smartphones is, and media, content, once we set it free from these physical things like discs and newspapers and books, let's not even get into the whole DRM, you know, perfect master, which scared all the you know, media companies and still does. Um, the biggest shift is, right, now the consumer is in control of the narrative, right? From the beginning of modern, you know, semi-mark TV news, the creators controlled the narrative. People listened to it and reacted. Likewise, when we think about music, you know, with the internet, and, well, before even the smartphone, was the iPhone was the what? The iPod. I could break up an album and only have the three tracks I wanted. Then I could buy only the three tracks. I didn't have to buy the whole thing, the album. That fragmentation is what happened to the business. For consumers, it put them in control. I only want two of those songs off that album. Thank you very much. 
That changed, I think, the nature of music because that made bands, I think, much more, oh, so they liked those two things but not the other 10 songs. Oh, oh sigh. Okay, I guess we need to go make more but like I the like other two that songs. that song. That fourth song was just, it's my that was favorite, my favorite. And my they life. don't like it? I poured my life, blood, sweat, and tears into that song. Dude, it's just ahead of its time. But <laughs> 25 years after you're dead, everybody's going to love it. Um, <laughs> Sometimes those songs are... Like, actually, well before our time. <laughs> right. <laughs> actually, there is no time for that, that time song. has passed, or no time at all. <laughs> um, but it was, it's, that, it's that central conceit of, and now that consumer is in control, right? They go where they, they'll go find out about your product from where they want to go find it. So if The Verge has done it, they'll go to The Verge if they like that. Maybe they'll go to the Wall Street Journal tech section. They go where they want. Mm. You know, and that's, I think, the hard probably the biggest challenge I think a lot of marketers still struggle with is acknowledging that they tell you, oh, we're about, all about customer experience, right? And then what is that? Well, customer experience is a lot of things. Absolutely. It's everything. Um, and it's a lot of little things. Um, but they talk about that, but I think they're still kind of figuring, I need to be able to, I want this control. It's like what you have as your control now as a marketer is, do you get the right information and information and data about customers? You need to stop, you know, guessing and, and do more observational stuff. What are they really doing as opposed to using our old school ways? Let's do some surveys and some focus yeah. groups. Um, so I'm going to, one of the things that came up when you were talking is I have in my, in my head a view that maybe we would change the way we structured story. Um, but I'm not so sure that it's absolute like that. And in fact, all, what we may be doing is still, as a, as a brand, as a brand, I want to control the message for my greater story. Mm -hmm. And tactically, I need to get the message about it to all the different audiences and tailor it just to them. You know, and if it comes down to one-on-one, -on -one, then I have that many people telling that story to one other person, their friend, right? Um, and maybe modifying it to reach that person. So there's a way of thinking about that that could use the technology we have or technology we could build. And I'm okay with that. But what I think is, is uh, what I'm, gonna, I'm making as a hypothesis here is that the actual brand story isn't going to be that much different than when David Ogilvie was doing this back in the day. Oh, no. I, I agree completely, right? That I'm sorry if you were hoping no, to disagree no. violently. Um, but we don't have to disagree the on this podcast. The brand, yes, the essence of the brand, if you, as you define it, and yes, as your customers help define it as well, that's still the core. But I mean, we've seen this new practice emerge called content marketing, right? And if I recall, you know, I might have said that when I first heard that term, I'm like, Marketing's always been about, it's about content. We were always doing content. Why is it all of a sudden content marketing? But it's a, it's a practice, right? Now it's a discipline. But this is where I sometimes disagree. Is it's, if we say practice, it's, that's too, it's, it's more of a principle. You know what I mean? Yes, and, of course. And you can be really good at, you can't be good at content marketing if you aren't good at storytelling, period. Right? You may have just a product that's not very good and yeah. all the great storytelling in the world isn't going to help. Right, so, and so that essence of the brand is my ability to communicate and tell stories about how my brand, my products, 
help this segment or change this segment's life or X and Y or enable this new way, a better way of doing things. All right, Absolutely. So, so we're almost to the end here because uh, we're taking one, one chunk of a long conversation that's been going on for quite a few years and it will continue on after this, after we've recorded this particular part of it. But for the purpose of <coughs> this particular podcast, I have one more question for you. And that question comes back to the essence of story. So um, I've got a kid who's making movies. Yeah, I saw. Yeah. So his movies, it, when you make a movie, uh, the stranger comes to town or the hero goes on a journey, right? With a product, I kind of learned what the, what the bankers told me, right? It's like you've got some really cool um, product, and you've got some advantages that you have as a company. You've got a business model that pays. You have an ability to execute. And I, if you give me those things, I can weave a, you know, mm -hmm. a narrative around that. So what do you think is really that product story? When, you, when you're out talking to people about the mobile you know, marketing, what are you telling them about the kind of story they should be telling? Um, this sounds cheesy, but really is your story does have, you need authenticity right? Be, just be very clear and authentic about what it is your product does. And make sure that that's consistently reflected and amplified by everybody in your organization, right? Not just the CEO when he or she gets interviewed, right, on a, by a big media outlet. Um, and have something to say. <laughs> what, you know, not just about your product. If you're going to engage in content marketing, you have to have a, a story to tell that isn't just always it does it better, faster, and cheaper than that other thing you were using, right? And I think that's where we often get, and that's I think where a lot of marketers, especially technology folks, get lost is they keep admiring the technology or admiring the problem they solve, right? And that's where I think every, a lot of things sometimes break down. Um, and the other thing, you know, that's hard for marketers in that world with content marketing, you actually have to think like a publisher. And what is a publisher? Mm. And I don't mean, you know, what's his name from the Superman series. I mean the editor, right? We would think more like the editor. What do they want? What is it we're trying to say about this event or this product? How do I get to them as quickly and efficiently as possible? And when I'm using it, am I using the right language that is clearly in communicating what this event or this thing is? Um, and that's very hard for marketers to start thinking like that because it requires them to think about who they've always dealt with as an intermediary before, which was the media. They now, as content marketers, need to actually think a lot more like those people they used to work with before. And that's, that's tough. And think about it now where I think an interesting point, right? We're at this data-driven world now, especially for marketers which is great, right? We should be measuring stuff. We shouldn't do stuff if we can't measure it. But you know, there, I think there's an interesting tension going on between the folks who want to be really good storytellers about their brand and the analytics data-driven side. In har those things can work in harmony, but I think we're at a stage now where people are trying to recalibrate with that. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. And on that note, we're going to have to stop, not because we don't have more to say, but because I'm low on battery. Because here at the... At the Blank name. The village. <laughs> a village. Apparently there are no power outlets out here. In so, the outdoor seating area. So we, uh, we're going to have to stop now. But 
honestly, this has been a fantastic hour. And I really appreciate the time, Mike, as always. Thank you. The next time you are going to bring your guitar to, uh, to Marin and we're going to do an open mic night. Okay, as long as I don't have to play with your kid's band. They're good. Uh, they are, but they're a long way away now, so they're... Oh, okay, good. So we don't have to... We don't, they don't, and they don't, really, they don't even want to be part of it anyway, so we can do our own thing. You guys know Freebird? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, thank you very much. That was my pleasure.